Hello everyone, my name is Eric Rosenberg. Welcome to the brand new PayActive podcast. At PayActive, our motto is live the life you've earned. Whether you're someone with a full-time job who's looking to improve your financial situation, or maybe a C-suite or HR executive who wants to help your workforce reach their best financial lives, you've come to the right place. We're launching this podcast in February, and while we like to support communities of color all year round, Black History Month is a great time to take a look at the specific financial challenges and opportunities facing Black Americans today. We were lucky to have an opportunity to sit down with two amazing financial experts from the Black community online to get their insights and perspectives on the biggest challenges facing Black American households and opportunities for leaders to help those workers overcome financial challenges that are built into our economy. So let's dive in and sit down with our very first guest. Our first guest is Wilson Muscadin from The Money Speakeasy. He's a husband, father, financial coach, accredited financial counselor, and regular speaker on financial topics. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Wilson. All right, everyone, we are here with Wilson. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Could you tell us a little bit about the Money Speakeasy and what brought you into the personal finance community? Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. I, uh, as the, the Money Speakeasy sort of originated out of uh, just the desire to help folks that I didn't feel like were being uh, assisted in the way that they should. Uh, my background, I've been in the financial services industry now uh, for up to 20 years and uh, worked for very large financial services companies. And um, the way <laughs> our financial services industry is is set up uh, because of the sort of wealth inequality that we've all heard about and dealt with is that, you know, companies oh, well within their rights are gearing their financial services towards the top end of the spectrum. Um, because the dynamic is so tilted, uh, most of the profits and the you know, most valuable customers are at the top end of the economic spectrum. Um, but for me, as somebody that uh, comes out of a different community, um, I felt like you know there are millions upon millions, 90% um, of the country, uh, that's being either underserved or outright ignored. Uh, and so that's where the Money Speakeasy started, started out is my own personal upbringing of having a lot of money conversations with my father. I felt like a lot of these conversations weren't happening in mainstream America. And a lot of those people that I described, the 90% of folks that uh, either weren't properly trained how to manage their finances or, um, you know, just had questions that they had nowhere to get get answers. Uh, and so that's where the Money Speakeasy uh, originated out of. And um, myself, I'm a financial coach in that regard and help people manage the what I call their financial fundamentals and getting them to a place where uh, they can, you know, elevate their financial status. Great. So you have a lot of insight into people's personal finances and you've seen a lot across the spectrum so you are a perfect person to give us insights into uh, what we're talking about today and and that is as we all know the financial situation for black americans and while black history month is is an important time to talk about this it's also important to think about and act on year-round so wilson it's 2022 and we've gone through some big ups and downs in with COVID, the economy, 
has uh, seen some people do very, very well, while other people have done uh, very, very poorly. Uh, so what does it mean in your eyes to be black and poor in America in 2022? I think uh, there's a lot there in terms of uh, we think of our society as a whole, uh, as Americans, um, and American culture is um, it's it's rich, but it's um, it's individualistic in its nature. And I think a lot of times we think of ourselves as, you know, individuals that are that's part of this thing that we call America. Um, but um, all different communities have had different entry points into this American experiment. And 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 so depending on your entry point into this American experiment, you can be starting a race at a very different position uh, than others. And so if you think about um, the, the period of time in, uh, in, in history from, you know, 1619 to the present, um, or just take, take 1619 to, let's say, 1965, um, that's, you know, 350 years per se, of where um, Black Americans in particular were not, not only locked out of the economy, but their labor was extracted from them. Um, and you can argue that um, the wealth that we enjoy in America as the wealthiest nation in the world was built on the back of stolen labor that has not been replaced or uh, repaid or <laughs> or in, in any way, meaningful way, shape or form. And so that that deficit I, um, has uh, impacts to today. Uh, we talk about uh, the idea of compound interest. And if you think about compound interest, essentially for all of us, regardless of your, um, your stripe, your background, um, all of us are playing this retirement game of um, we essentially work for 30, for 40 years from ages 25 to 65, let's say on average, to pay for um, not working from ages 65 to 95. So you've got 40 years to um, build up enough wealth so that you don't have to work for the last 30 years of your life. So you can't do that, um, particularly these days without pensions, by just you know saving um, dollar for dollar. You need compound interest in order for that to build um, so that you have enough to save for 30 years of not working. Well, think about 350 years of not only not saving, but actively your 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 worth, your work, your workload is actively being extracted from you, and that compounding over almost 400 years. <laughs> and so that deficit, if we're just speaking of the economic aspect of it, let's set aside the moral argument of it is so large that we're seeing these disparities. And so black Americans in particular are only in their second generation of having full civil and economic rights. So if you think about, you know, immigrants that come to this country, a lot of them, you know, start on, you know, start at, you know, lower level jobs and then their kids, you know, graduate and are, are able to, you know, access more of the economy and each successive generation gets better and better. Um, Black Americans in particular have a deficit of 350 years of extracted wealth and now only are in their second generation of having full economic rights. So I think that is the context upon which 
I think it's important to understand when we speak about, um, you know, the, the, the wealth gap and, and where black Americans are today. I think it's really important to understand because a lot of times people want to just um, talk about today isolated, almost in a vacuum, isolated from the context of 350 years of extracted labor. Um, and so that to me doesn't equate, it doesn't, doesn't sit right with me. So I think um, the other dynamic, and just in terms of this wealth inequality that I was talking about before, our access, our ability to access all the benefits of the American experiment, those are getting harder and harder to reach. Um, as you get lower and lower on the economic spectrum. And there's a hollowing out of the middle class as we experienced, and we're now in a situation where we're experiencing some inflation, and it's gonna get even harder on top of this pandemic. And so we've gotta think about that in terms of um, how that impacts certain communities of all races and backgrounds, but particularly those um, with less income. Yeah, well, thank, those are great insights, thank you. So so to uh, take it, an a little more personal, you know, I, as a finance writer, I you know, see a lot of those big stories. We, uh, mostly in, in the finance world, know the story about black wall street, which if people aren't familiar, um, uh, that's definitely something worth reading about. It's, it was, a an area where it was a neighborhood where the black community was doing really, really well. Financially, there were banks, black owned banks and other businesses and a white mob came and, totally destroyed everything, murdered a lot of people. It was a terrible, terrible story. But we you know, look at stories like that and we think of you know, all the numbers of people who were affected. And that makes it harder to think about the individual stories. So as a financial coach, you work with a lot of individuals and you, you can't give away any personal details, but are you able to share any stories or uh, about somebody who you can think of who is a good example where because of race, they were not able to uh, reach the same financial um, goals as somebody else might have been able to. Yeah, I think um, if I if I may, let me back up a little bit and talk about the the the, the Tulsa um, situation. Um, so after um, you know, so we're talking about cities that were being built and developed. And this is not Tulsa. This is not not just Tulsa. The, there are examples of this all over the country, Tulsa being the most famous example. But there's examples of this. And then I'll just sort of um, skip to how this resonates to today. So if you think about the Tulsa situation, you had a town developed in and of itself, a um, a a uh, black town that was thriving. So this is after uh, after the post-Civil War, we're in Reconstruction, and basically you have um, freed slaves that are building a city, a town, and upon itself um, that is self-sustaining and self-sufficient. The, the dollars within that community are circulating rapidly and families are starting to build wealth and grow. Now, the neighboring part of that city, there were, um, they're now seeing that there are black Americans who they see through the eyes of race and racism, they see as being um, not sufficient, right? There are, they are less than. And so if you see somebody who you believe is, um, is inferior to you, having more wealth and success um, that creates a, a, a resentment 
that they're, they are doing something that is untoward. And, and you can see the parallels in terms of, um, how, you know, the, the, you know, 20, uh, the 2020, 2009 elections with uh, the conversation with Barack Obama. Um, if you see somebody that of, of that level of success and that happening, that brings up these feelings of resentment. That resentment w- created a situation in which a mob decided that they were going to destroy the town and destroy the wealth of that town. They had burnt, burned down all of um, nearly all of the businesses, the central businesses of that town. And because of the structural elements of that, uh, of, of how that worked, the insurance companies balked and a lot of those families never recovered. Um, a lot of those businesses never recovered. Now, why do I bring up that background? I bring up that background because specifically within the black community, and again, this is not just Tulsa, this happened in other cities around the country. You have generations of folks that will say to you, for example, I don't trust banks. Don't put your money in the bank. Keep your money under your mattress. Okay. Why would, and you would think to yourself, why would somebody say something like that? Well, it's coming from a direct experience of having a situation in which, whether uh, through racist acts or through, uh, you know, again, I go back to the money being extracted from people, wealth being extracted and taken from them. So black Americans' distrust of institutions a lot of times is um, is directly uh, correlated to their own experiences. And so, um, so that distrust in, in terms of those institutions, even to today, so your grand, your grandfather told your grand, your, your great grandfather told your, taught this to your grandfather, who taught this to your father, who taught this to you. We distrust these people because of these experiences. This is why. And so that the, if you look at the statistics in terms of um, the unbanked or the underbanked, um, African Americans are high on that list, but again, that's based out of experiences, not because of intelligence or those kinds of things. Those are based in experiences. So, to your question of the personal example, when you have clients that are trying to, you know, build their financial lives outside of the banking system, <laughs> that that can create. Um, so there, there's almost a deficit of trust there that you have to get them to. Um, you know, overcome those fears of this of this system first to be able to take advantage of the opportunities because it's very difficult to be able to build wealth in this country without some level of trust in the institutions upon which wealth is built in this country. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So do you, can you share any individual stories of somebody you know who avoided the banking system or, or avoided investing and it cost them uh, either, you know, f- potential future earnings, or uh, maybe uh, maybe they had put their money under the mattress or in a coffee can and it was lost. Have you ever seen that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mean, um, you know, there's several individuals, and in, uh, and you can just look at communities in general um, that aren't invested in the stock market, um, had all their money in um, their homes. Right. The, their 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 home was basically all of their wealth. And then 2009 happened um, and a lot of black Americans, uh, you can look at the statistics. A lot of black Americans lost 
the vast majority of their wealth because all of their wealth was in their their primary residence. Um, and because of the lack of you know diversified investments, um, not just in real estate, but in the stock market as well, or in other you know uh, in other um, asset classes, um, that really significantly harms um, the African American community. Um, and again, a lot of this goes back to trust of institutions. And so personally, I've experienced having those conversations about, hey, look, like in order to make this happen, you need to do um, this is something that you need to consider. And the conversation is, well, you know, we don't we don't do that. Like, that's not that's yeah, I don't I don't trust these banks. These banks are out to, to, to take stuff from me like it's not. So those are the kinds of conversations that uh, many of us are having within the community that, um, yes. And, and it's not it's not just, you know, something that happened 100 years ago. If you see, for example, you know, the subprime lending crisis and all, all these settlements that um, let's pick on Wells Fargo, for example, have had that still that stuff still happens today. Um, and so it is not something where people are holding on to something that happened a hundred years ago. Um, some of these, this mistrust <laughs> is built for a reason. Um, and so having these conversations about getting around this mistrust in order to facilitate uh, the building of wealth is an important conversation to have. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you. Yeah. So we have, we have a few more questions for you. So one, we uh, at PayActive, we have a framework that livelihood is a state of sustained sustainability and control. So you don't have to worry, uh, you know, if your next paycheck comes a day late, you'll be okay. Or you're covering your education needs, your medication, transportation, food, shelter, and you don't have to worry about tomorrow. What would you see are the steps for black Americans who are struggling financially today? And I know that's a general question because everyone's households are unique, but what would you see are the main steps someone could follow to achieve that level of livelihood? Yeah. So um, let me throw out two statistics. Um, and I will preface this by saying that these are pre-pandemic statistics. I, the last I checked, I think it was from 2018. So pre-pandemic statistics. Based on the pandemic, you can probably add five points to these. So 78% of American households of all races are living paycheck to paycheck, right? 78% of all households. And this, these two statistics are one of the, are two primary factors for why I became a financial coach. So 78% of of all American households, of American adults, are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, so, to your point of uh, sustainability, um, you know, basically four out of five households are living financially um, unsustainable lives. The second statistic is that um, sixty percent of Americans do not have a thousand dollars in cash saved um, for an emergency. And so again, both of those are pre-pandemic statistics, so you could probably add five points to them. Um, but regardless of race, um, this is uh, an American problem um, in terms of having um, our country being built on um, people that are the vast majority of people being financially unstable, right? And to me, that is an existential problem. 
Uh, and it's if you think about inflation, that's only going to get worse. And so to answer your question directly, I think the things that should be primary on the minds of most Americans is one um, is to build emergency savings. That should be priority um, priority number one. I would say one one A is understanding the inflow and outflow of income, understanding where your money is coming and going, um, and then one B would be building emergency savings. I think building emergency savings is even more important than paying down credit card debt. I think it's one of the most important things that you can do is to understand where your money is coming and going and to build emergency cash savings. Uh, and in my mind, um, the emergency cash savings should be in a separate account that's separate from your, from your checking account, a separate bank that's separate from your checking account. And it should have an amount that is uh, enough. You build an amount over time that is enough to withstand most of your, you know, um, financial emergencies. I would start with something that is, you know, one month worth of your expenses and try to build towards three months of expenses. The what I say about an emergency fund is an emergency savings fund is often the difference between a financial inconvenience and a financial catastrophe. Right. And so what happens is particularly for folks that are within that 78% that I talked about that are living paycheck to paycheck, what can happen with folks that don't have emergency savings, it starts a downward spiral spiral of negative financial incidences. Right. So one missed payment um, becomes two missed payments, becomes maxing out credit cards, becomes, you know, um, missing, um, you know, having, you know, a negative incidence in, on your credit. And this downward spiral gets you from what could have been a seemingly stable financial situ situation to the bottom of the rail um, and where every financial decision is, you know, sort of a, a live or die and you're living from day to day, not even from paycheck to paycheck, you're living day to day. And that is the situation that you want to try to avoid at all costs. And so I think particularly for folks that are um, that relate to that paycheck to paycheck experience, the most important thing that they can do is build emergency savings um, as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's great advice and uh, important statistics to keep in mind also because you know people shouldn't necessarily feel bad if they're struggling with money. It's not something people often talk about because they're not proud of it, but a lot of people are struggling. So if you're having a hard time out there, you're not alone and uh, you, you don't have to let that get you down that you're the only one in this situation because a lot of people are dealing with it. Oh, I was just going to say quickly, it is, it is the primary reason that I bring that 78% statistic up because I think because we're so private about, the, about money, and it's one of the reasons that I, uh, I called my company the Money Speakeasy, is to have a, a joint place where people can talk about things that are sort of taboo. Uh, and I bring up that 78% statistic because most people, because we're so private about money, feel like they're alone in their situation where it's four out of five people that you know, <laughs> maybe even more than four out of five people that you know. And so um, so it is so common, and it's one of those things that it's it's common around um, or, around the country, but since we're so private about it, we feel like we're by ourselves. You are by no means um, by yourself uh, in this uh, in the struggle at all. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So one last question, we're gonna 
turn the audience a little bit. So far, we've been thinking mostly about you know the the day to day workers. That that's who we're talking to mostly on this podcast. The people who are who are out there in the call centers and making deliveries every day. But there are HR managers and CEOs that may be listening as well. And they might be inspired to take action to to help those workers uh, succeed and and thrive and reach the that level of livelihood we were discussing a, a few minutes ago. So, if you were going to talk to them, what what advice would you give to those HR leaders and corporate leaders around the country on how they can help their workers uh, turn around and thrive? Yeah. So. Um... I'll start out first with a um, sports analogy. Um, you know, we just um, we just had the Super Bowl, and um, when you think about football, oftentimes, again, I go back to you know our um, American culture being uh, on, on more on the individualistic spectrum. So often we focus on um, the quarterback. Um, you know, the Tom Brady's of the world is they, they call him the, the greatest football player of all time. <laughs> and even in a team sport with, you know, 11 players on the field on both teams, um, we still find a way to sort of isolate well, one individual. Um, and even your, the greatest quarterback is pedestrian at best with a, without a strong offensive line. If that offensive line, the linemen, the big guys in front of him that protect him from from getting mauled by the defense, if they're not able to protect him, um, there is nothing. Um, it, it doesn't matter how you can be the even better than Tom Brady. You're not going to be successful. And so I think in our individualistic culture, we um, we have to be careful not to be myopic about how this whole American experiment runs. And that if we don't think about and take care of the offensive linemen, none of us will be successful. And so what I would say to uh, HR and to you know um, leaders, executive leaders alike, is that we have to invest in the financial wellness and financial aptitude of our employees. You have to build up your offensive line. And if we don't do that, if we don't build the financial capacity, the financial understanding, because we all know that many of us, not not a ton of us took uh, financial management classes in school. And a lot of us are, are, are working on faulty assumptions about finance. And so if you want to empower your employees to be the best that they can be, Financial wellness and financial literacy is an enormous aspect of that. I think it, it should be mandatory um, for uh, for employers to equip their employees on how to manage the resources that you're paying them, um, because if they mismanage those resources, it's going to not only affect the individual employee, but it's going to affect the company as a whole. Yeah, that's that's great advice, and we see. Even going back to sports, there's a lot of stories of, you know, athletes or, or high millionaire entertainers blowing through all their money and ending up broke. So this isn't just a problem for low income Americans. This is a problem for all Americans of, of all income levels. If you don't have the education and the knowledge of how to 
best manage your money, you could make very costly mistakes. Yeah. So even within that 78% that I quoted before, um, there's a good portion. I can't remember the exact number, but um, when they did the survey, uh, there was a good number of that 78% that made over $100,000 a year. Um, and so the level of income, the, the number of zeros is, is, is not as important as the information and building the capacity to be able to manage resources. At the end of the day, um, I always speak about uh, money being like learning a language. Managing money is a skill, like learning a language. And if we don't teach people to be fluent about their finances, um, they're going to waste those resources. And, um, and again, that has a negative impact on the entire team. Yeah, well, that's that's a great place, I think, to end this one. Thank you so much, Wilson. If anyone wants to find you or connect with you, could you shout out a link or a URL or, or somewhere they can go? Absolutely. You can reach me at themoneyspeakeasy.com. That's the T-H-E-M-O-N-E-Y-S-P-E-A-K-E-A-S-Y. That's themoneyspeakeasy.com. Also on socials at moneyspeakeasy at Money Speak Easy, you can reach me. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and having this conversation with us. I found it insightful and meaningful, and I hope our listeners did as well. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're not already a PayActive member, be sure to head over to payactive.com where you can sign up for free to access our suite of free financial tools like early access to your paychecks, free financial counseling, tracking your money, and a whole lot more. We're not done with Black History Month just yet, so be sure to come back soon for our second Black History Month episode, where we sit down with my good friend, Michelle Jackson. Thanks so much for joining us, Wilson, and thanks to all of you for listening till the end. Now get out there and live the life you've earned. <laughs>